Well, we are picking up right where we left off in our First Samuel series this morning. So if you have your Bibles in front of you, go ahead and find your way to First Samuel. And we've been reading about how uh, Saul becomes the first king of Israel. Israel's gone through this time of the judges. Now they're into this time. Samuel came as this prophetic priest bringing uh, you know, spiritual renewal in the nation of Israel. And now Israel has come before God and they've demanded a king. And so that's what we've been reading in these past few chapters. Chapters 9 through 11 are all about how Saul ends up becoming the guy who's the first king of Israel. And I think there's been a question that's kind of been hovering in the background as we've been reading these chapters. If you've been here for the past few weeks, you've heard about how Saul so far has not been that inspiring of a choice as king. He's kind of just here, neither here nor there. You're kind of not sure what kind of king he's going to turn out to be. And so I think in the background of the text, it's been asking us, we've been wondering, well, how, how is Saul going to do as king? What's going to happen here with Saul? How is he going to do? And now as we get into our text this morning, that's exactly, it's going to ask that question out loud. How can this man Saul save us? That's the question that the text is uh, going to ask this morning and then answer. How can this man Saul save Israel? And at first glance, it might not seem like that question has anything to do with us at all, right? We're not, we aren't the nation of Israel. We don't have a king. We're not trying to put a king in place. We're not worried about whether Saul, you know, we don't have a a bad king leading us that we have, we have in fact the best king leading us in Jesus Christ. So we don't have this exact same worry as them. And sometimes I think I'm certainly, I certainly do this. I go to the Old Testament and I read about the people of Israel and it's, it's interesting. It's exciting. I'm like, yeah, how is Saul going to save Israel? I'm reading along. I'm, I'm enjoying learning about Israel, ancient Israel, learning about the people of God. But we know that the Old Testament is more than just interesting stories about God's people. The Old Testament is God's very scripture breathed out by him that's profitable for us, for our uh, training up in righteousness, for equipping us for good works. And so I do think that this question, how can Saul save Israel, has a lot to do with us this morning for a couple of reasons. First of all, we're just like Israel in that we are now God's covenant people. For all of us in here this morning who are in Christ and who have placed our faith in him, have repented and placed our faith in him for salvation, we've been brought in, grafted in to these covenant promises of Israel. We are now God's covenant people, just like Israel were God's covenant people throughout uh, the Old Testament. Now we have been grafted into that promise. And so, what we learn in this passage is how God goes about rescuing his covenant people. What are the ways in which God is going to answer this question? How is God going to use Saul to rescue his people? And that question matters for us because also like Israel, we often mess up. We are prone to wander, prone to look at what the other people around us are doing and try that. We're prone to make unwise, foolish, sinful decisions and find ourselves in a mess, find ourselves facing consequences of our actions and then we're wondering, man, now what? <laughs> now I've messed this up. Now how is God, uh, how are we going to fix this? How are we going to move forward? And that's what we're going to see in this passage this morning. How is Saul going to save Israel? And by extension, how does God work to save his covenant people when we mess up now today? So we're going to jump right in where we left off last Sunday. If you remember, we were in chapter 10 last Sunday, and Samuel had brought together all Israel at Mizpah, and they're going to find out who the king is going to be. He's already privately anointed Saul. Then they all get together, and God is going to choose Saul to be the king over all Israel. And they cast lots, and they narrow it down, they narrow it down, and they choose Saul. And then everybody looks around, and they go, where's Saul? 
I thought, they just chose him and said, Saul, and he doesn't come forward. Nobody knows where he's at. So God has to kind of like lean in and be like, hey, guys, he's hiding over there in the baggage. So they have to go drag him out. He's hiding. They pull him out. Samuel kind of pulls him up to the front, you know, raises his arm up. Behold your king. This is your king, Israel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 24, that's where we left off last time, all the people shout, long live the king. So now where we're starting this morning, it's right on the heels of that. That's just happened. The, just, the, the shouts of long live the king are dying, and that's where we're jumping in to the text this morning, starting in verse 25, if you'll read along with me these first few verses. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own, to his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he, Saul, held his peace. So right as we open up our text this morning, this question is posed, and then the rest of the text is going to answer it. How can this man save us? How can Saul save Israel? That's the question that we're looking at this morning. That's what these first few verses set up. And let's just briefly go through and explain what's going on. Samuel, they've, they've just announced Saul as king, and the first thing he does is he writes down now what the new rules are for the new king. They're moving from one form of government to the other. It's like, if you remember your U.S. history classes, we went from the Articles of Confederation. That wasn't working. We wrote the Constitution, right? This is what's happening here, a new form of government. Now there's a monarchy in Israel, so Samuel has to write down the rules. Probably he's writing down a lot of that stuff from Deuteronomy 17. If you remember when we talked about that, what's the king supposed to do? Uh, Be an example and lead the people to worship God. Uh, So a lot of that is probably what Samuel's writing down there. Then he sends everybody home. And this is kind of funny. Saul just goes home. There's there's no capital city yet in, in Israel. Jerusalem has not yet been claimed as the capital city. And so now the new king Saul, he's just gonna go home and I guess now Gubay is the capital. So now Saul's gonna reign from his home there in Gibeah. And notice how God is already starting. He's already starting to answer the question even before it's asked in verse 26 because God sends with him, you see there, some men of valor whose hearts God had touched. So God picks Saul. He says, Saul's my king. And then he already starts to help Saul. He sends Saul home and he gets a few more people to go with him. Hearts of valor, uh, men of valor whose God touches their hearts. He sends them home with Saul maybe the beginning of some kind of standing army for Israel. This is Saul. He's the king now. He needs people to help him out. So God sends some people with him. And then we get to verse 27, and we're going to spend some time here trying to figure out what's going on. Some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. We need to figure out why why do they despise Saul? And then why are they called worthless fellows here? First of all, We'll start with why they despise Saul because, again, if you've been with us the past few weeks as we've been reading uh, through First Samuel, it actually kind of makes sense on some level why they would despise Saul, right? Saul, remember what they just saw. They saw a guy cowering behind bags hoping that they wouldn't find him back there, hoping that God wouldn't see that he was back behind the bags. And they go, okay, here's your king, this guy who was just cowering behind the bags. You can, you can kind of understand yeah, how can this guy save us? Who is this guy? He's not, he doesn't seem like he's going to be a good king. So it kind of makes sense on the sense that Saul is uninspiring so far. 
I think also they despise him because they're starting to realize their mistake. You know, they wanted a king like the nations. Then God gives them a king like the nations. And then they go, this is, this is what a king like the nations is like. He's cowering behind the bags. He's not, that, he's not looking that good. And they're going, we might be in trouble. If this is our king, we might be in trouble. And so they despise him. And I think also are realizing a little frustrated with themselves. Man, what? This, this is what we wanted? This is our king? So on one hand, it kind of makes sense that they're despising him. How can this man save us? But the verse calls them worthless fellows. That's the same uh, phrase that was used to describe Eli's sons, worthless. The exact same phrase in Hebrew. And you remember Eli's sons were not good, really, really bad guys. So these are the same type of people, worthless people. So why are these people worthless? Even though it seems like they're hitting on a, a question that's kind of been hinted at in the text. Saul's not that inspiring. How can he save us? I think there's a lot of reasons why the text calls these men worthless. And the first thing is that they demanded a king. God gave them exactly what they wanted. And then they were like, no, God, we don't actually like this king. God is doing, they're they're ungrateful, right? They want a king. God says, it's not going to be a good idea, but fine, here's a king. Immediately, as soon as God gives them a king, they're ungrateful. And they go, well, we don't like this king. Come on, God, why would you give us this terrible king? So that's the beginning of their uh, worthlessness. That's part of the problem. They also are are worthless because they aren't actually respecting God's chosen anointed king. God has said, okay, Saul is my king. He anointed him to be the king over Israel. And as we uh, learned back as we've been reading through this, God is is the true king of Israel. These are his people. And so when God tells them something, hey, guys, this is your king now. This is who's going to lead you. They're supposed to listen to God and, and help out their king. They're not supposed to be like, oh, God, but we don't like this guy. We'll do whatever we want. They're supposed to obey God. And so God gives them a king. He says, this is your king. Most people are like, all right, let's go. They're, they're excited about Saul. They're helping. They're giving him gifts. And these guys don't like the Lord's anointed, and they despise him, and they don't give him any presents, and they aren't going to help him in uh, his beginning his kingship. And then there's another reason why they're worthless, and I think this is really the bottom line heart issue underlying all of it, is that they lack faith in God that he can actually use this king to save them. They're looking at Saul. They're, they're not liking what they're seeing. And instead of trusting and placing their faith in God to know that Saul, God can do anything. God can use anyone to save them. Uh, they don't trust God. They don't believe that God can use this wimpy king to save them. And it's because ultimately they're putting their hope, their faith in this human king and not in their true king, Yahweh. They're not hoping in God to save them. They're hoping that this king can save them. And that's why they're worthless. They don't have faith. They don't have faith that God can save them. They're trying, they're just trying to grab around down here, trying to find things in the world to save them that are never going to work as they're realizing as they look at Saul. So these first three verses here set the stage for everything that's going to happen in chapter 11. So now we have God choosing Saul as king before all Israel. Now there's some tension introduced to the text. Some people are like, how can this man save us? Basically a challenge has been issued. God, you chose this king. He's terrible. How can this guy save us? And now we're going to see as we go into chapter 11 how, in fact, Saul will save them. So this is a setup for the rest of the chapter. We're going to find out once and for all what kind of king Saul's going to be, whether Saul can actually save Israel. And you remember I said that this question, how can this man save us, uh, does actually matter to us. And it's because we are often like these despisers of Saul and we lack faith in God and then we try to figure our way out of things on our own. And we try to look at the nations, we try to look to our neighbors, to human things, to fix our problems, whatever it is. And then one day, the consequences come and hit us in the face. We go, oh, 
This is, the, this is what happened. This is what I wanted. And then we realize we messed up. We messed up. Just like these despisers of Saul have realized, wait a minute, Saul's, is this what we wanted? Saul's actually not that great. This is what we do. Um, I think, obviously, again, we don't have a king, so when we're bringing it across to application for our lives, remember when Pastor Lucas preached through chapter 9 that one of the main things he pointed out is that the king in Deuteronomy 17 is supposed to be an example for the people, influencing them to worship God. That's what the king was supposed to do. He was supposed to point them to the actual king. He was supposed to be an example for them, worshiping the Lord, guiding Israel in, in the right path, the right direction, doing the right things. And uh, when we look for things like the nations and we look around uh, when, when Israel wants a king like the nations, they're, uh, they're being influenced by the nations around them. They're, they're letting things that aren't from God influence them. They want to be like them. And we do that often. And, I mean, it's, it's right in the word, but a way, a way that all of us have to watch out for, of course, is in media and social media in our world today. It's very easy to be influenced down the wrong path by who knows what. So we've been given scripture. We've been given the church. God has given us. God is our king. He's given us scripture where we can go for wisdom and guidance. He's given us the church where we can come to be edified and built up and worship together. And then sometimes we're either not satisfied with that or maybe we want to add to that. It's not even always sinful. We want to go, hey, I want to serve God better. Maybe this guy over here can help me. And we start looking other places besides scripture. We start looking other places besides what God has given us to try and help, to try and do whatever we can. Again, not always even for the wrong motivations, but we start watching this guy on YouTube. Or we start following this particular news station or we start doing whatever it is and slowly those things draw us further and further away. Instead of making us look more like Christ, instead of influencing us to worship Christ, they start to pull us away further and further from God and then one day we wake up and we go, what happened? And we're running into consequences. Our life is falling apart. Things are going wrong and we realize, oh, I've been following this thing over here which is not from scripture. It's of the world and now I'm way off track. Um, All of us, I think, can think back in our life to a time when we have done something foolish or unwise or even sinful, tried that for a while, and then come face to face with the consequences and realize, oh no, now we've made a mess of things. Now we're in trouble. And that's when this question comes into play. After we've gone astray, we've sought to be like the nations, we've been influenced by the wrong people, we've walked off the path, now we're in a mess. Now what happens? Now what happens once we've done that? Some other examples that we've given before throughout this series. You can imagine the person who goes to a church not for the scriptural reasons, not for the right reasons, they're not preaching the gospel there, and then they get hurt, they get burned out, they leave the church, now they're in a mess. They've got consequences. Now what do they do? Maybe you dated the wrong person for the wrong reasons, and then you got hurt. It didn't work out because instead of looking for what God uh, tells us to look for in a relationship, you're looking for things that the world are looking for and then it doesn't work out, and now you're hurt, and now you're facing the consequences. Now what do we do? That's what this text is about. When God's people find themselves facing consequences for their worldly actions, what is God going to do about it? So we're going to continue reading into chapter 11 to see the answer. Again, the challenge has been issued. How can this man save us? Now it's Saul's turn to respond, God's turn to respond. How can Saul save Israel? That's what we're going to see starting in chapter 11. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and and we'll serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I'll make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all of your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, 
Give us seven days respite that we, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gebeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said to the Ammonites, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do whatever seems good to you. The next day Saul put the people into three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. What we're seeing in these next few verses is that uh, Saul and God resoundingly answer the question, how can this man save us? By rescuing Israel from the Ammonites. God uses Saul, his chosen king, to rescue the people of Israel from their enemy, the Ammonites. So let's just walk briefly through these verses, just point out a few things that are going on here. So basically, everybody goes home. Saul's king now, everybody goes home. In the meantime, over on the other side of Israel, across the Jordan, there's this people, the Ammonites, who are some of Israel's enemies, and this king, Nahash. And he's been over there wreaking havoc, taking over cities. They've been kind of attacking Israel from the east. Now, uh, Nahash goes up to Jabesh Gilead, this city, uh, in Israel, across the Jordan in Gilead, and he besieges the city, he sur- surrounds it, his army encamps around it, and the people of Jabesh just immediately give up. They're like, okay, fine, we'll serve you, we'll serve you, you know, just, just let us sign a treaty with you, we'll serve you. And uh, Nahash is like, great, yeah, let's do that, but on this one condition, let me gouge out your right eyes. And then Jabesh is like, uh, actually, hold on a sec, wait a minute, uh, let us, let's send some, give us seven days, give us seven days, we'll send some messengers, let's see if anybody will save us. And then Nahash is like, okay, let's see if anybody saves you. Um, a couple things to point out here, which is that, uh, first of all, Nahash, uh, not a good guy. He's this evil king, enemy of Israel. And when he comes to uh, make this treaty or take over Jabesh Gilead, and, they, and he wants to make a treaty with them, he wants to gouge out their right eyes. And there could be a couple reasons for this. One is, you know, he, wants, he would rather them, uh, instead of just killing all the city, he'd rather have them as his servants. He'd like to make a treaty with them. But he doesn't want them to rise up again, attack him, so he'll just injure them just enough, destroy one of their eyes, so they can still farm and, you know, send him taxes and stuff. But they're not going to be able to rise up against him and fight against him with just one eye. So there's practical reasons why Nahash might want to gouge out their eyes, but it tells us in the text, he says it, his real reason, his, his bottom line reason, is that he wants to bring disgrace upon all of Israel. He's looking over at this nation of Israel, and he wants to find some way to bring disgrace upon the whole nation, and so he's going to gouge out the eyes of the people of Jabesh. Then Nahash gives them that seven days. Um, and so either 
probably both of these things, but at least one, Nahash is looking over at Israel and he's going, nobody's going to come save these guys. He, he sees Israel and he sees a nation without a king like the nations. He sees just scattered tribes maybe. He sees whatever he sees over in Israel and he's like, nobody's going to come save these guys. Israel can't defeat me and my army. And on top of that, Nahash is uh, arrogant before the Lord. He doesn't, he doesn't believe that they have a God who's going to come save them. He doesn't know that they have this king, Yahweh, who can wipe him out at any time he wants. He has this arrogance say, yeah, what is, nobody in Israel could touch me. Who cares? I don't have a king. I don't know about this God. Uh, even if they do show up in seven days, he's like, ah, I'll just destroy him. And this is just a quick sidebar, but this is uh, how the unbelieving world views the people of God. And it's been the same from the beginning. Uh, the world looks for opportunities to, uh, if they can, humiliate the church, humiliate the people of God. If they have a chance, they will. They are arrogant before God. They don't think, they don't believe that we have a God who might actually protect the church, be building the church. They just don't like God's people. They hate them. Uh, Jesus said in the New Testament that if people hate us, it's because they hated Jesus. Um, and this is just to point out that this has been happening the whole time. It's not just a New Testament thing. Always God's people have been hated by the nations around them, by the people around them. And the people around us will continue to try to do that, to seek uh, our humiliation and our downfall. But we're going to see how God answers this, these uh, messengers, this threat to Israel. In verse 5, so they go to Gebeah, they go, hey, we have a new king. Let's send messengers to the new king. They send messengers to Gebeah, and they tell all the people in Gebeah they're all weeping. And where is Saul at? He's back in the fields farming. <laughs> He's the brand new king of Israel. And I guess nothing, this is his first test, really. Nothing's happened yet. He just got home, you know. He's, he's now become king, so he got home and he just kept farming. He's out in the field with two oxen. He brings the oxen back into town after he's done farming and everybody's crying, weeping, and he's like, what's going on? And they tell him, you know, Nahash, he's, he's out in Jabesh. He's gonna kill them all. And right here is where God answers the question of how this man can save Israel. And the answer is by, with the power of God's spirit. Verse six, God's spirit rushes upon Saul his anger is immediately kindled. And what the first, he takes those oxen right in front of him that he just had, cuts them up into pieces, hands the pieces to the messengers. He says, go out to all Israel, get everybody together. If they don't come, I'm going to come and cut up their oxen. And this was a very effective strategy. The, the fear, the dread of the Lord in verse 7, fell upon the people. All Israel comes out. They're able to muster 330,000 people to go and save Jabesh. Um, notice how it's not Saul that necessarily does anything in this passage. The first thing that happens when he hears the news is that God's spirit rushes upon him. God is going to use Saul to do this. Saul, so far in the narrative, again, has not been like a, really a man of action. He's not really been a guy to get up and take action. And so in this case, God's not waiting for him to get up and take action. God's just taking the reins, and he's sending the spirit on Saul so that Saul can go and defeat the Ammonites. The last time the Spirit was rushing on somebody like this besides Saul was Samson. And then when the Spirit rushed on Samson, Samson killed a lot of Philistines. So here it is again. The Spirit rushes on Saul, and now Saul is going to go and defeat the Ammonites. The Spirit stirs up this anger in Saul to defend the people of Israel, to defend the honor of God's people, and they muster the army, and they go uh, to defeat the Ammonites. Uh, they send the messengers back to Jabesh, then Jabesh is like, hey, we're going to surrender to you tomorrow. So you can imagine, the Ammonites are like, okay. They just kick back and camp that night. They're relaxed. They're like, ah, oh, nobody's going to come save them. Then in the morning watch, in the middle of the night, like two or three in the morning, Saul ambushes the Ammonites in three companies. And from the middle of the night till the middle of the day, 
They destroy the Ammonites until they're completely scattered. No two of them are left together. What we're seeing in this passage is that God is silencing all doubts as to whether uh, he can use this King Saul that he has chosen to save Israel. And I just think about how kind and merciful God is being towards Israel here. They rejected him as, his, as their king. They said, God, we don't like the way you're running things. Give us a king like the nations. God gives them what they want. And then he uses this king who's taking his place, this king that they rejected him for, to save the people. And remember why they wanted a king in the first place was because they had enemies on both sides. They're like, God, give us, a, give us a king to fight our battles. We need a king to protect us. And so God, who could have was their king, who was protecting them, now uses this king they wanted to do exactly what they wanted him to do, protect him from their enemies. Um, think about how God, God could have just, God could have used this opportunity to say, hey, you guys were wrong. See, you don't need a king. I can save you. He could have just, boom, wiped out the Ammonites. But instead, in his kindness towards Israel, he uses this king, shows that he can use anybody, no matter how wimpy that person is, no matter what kind of king they are, God empowers him and saves his people uh, using his king, Saul. This is uh, the culmination of chapters 9 through 11. And now Saul is 100% confirmed. There's no doubt, no doubt in anyone's mind, Saul is the king of Israel. God has proved it here today. He's his king. He's going to use him to save Israel. So this is really the main point of the whole thing. When God's people find themselves facing the consequences of their worldly choices, God is faithful to work salvation through his chosen king. That's what he does for Israel here, and that's what he does for us. And before we get back to how God does that for us, let's just finish up these last three verses here, see what the result is, see how God has now saved them. Now what do the people say now that God has saved them? Uh, Starting in verse 12, just the last three verses of the chapter. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So as soon as the battle ends, the people of Israel run up to Samuel. And they're like, Samuel, you remember those guys who despised Saul? Where are they at? Let's kill them. Because now they've seen Saul's their king. These are the people who are cheering. Yes, Saul's our king. He's going to protect us from the enemy. He does that, and now they're on the lookout. Where did those people go who are despising Saul? We need to get rid of them. We need to kill them. Look how amazing Saul is. He's our king. And then in what might be his best moment as king of Israel, and in one of the best moments Saul has in his life, in verse uh, 13, Saul steps in. They go to Samuel in verse 12. Hey, Samuel, let's kill these people. And then Saul steps in. He says, no, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Uh, Saul, again, in his best moment here, realizes that it wasn't him who did this. He wasn't the one who mustered up the anger, mustered up the strength to rally all of Israel together to go and defeat the Ammonites. He knows that it was the spirit of the Lord that empowered him. It was the spirit, it was God who actually worked salvation for Israel. Uh, There is no doubt, it is clear that it's the Lord is the one who works salvation for his people and he does it through his king. So then Samuel gets everybody together, they go to Gilgal and they renew the kingdom. Basically again, this is the culmination here. 
Saul has been privately anointed. Then he was publicly announced before Israel. Now he's proven himself. He's done a ki- his first kingly act in rescuing Israel from the Ammonites. And now all Israel is going to confirm, yes, this is our king. This is the king that God has placed over us. It's, it's now done. Saul is the king of Israel. What we learn in this passage is that God is the one who works out salvation for his people, and he can do it any way, anyhow, using any person he chooses to do so. God chose the Israelites to be his holy, set-apart nation on the earth. He brought them out. He made them a people. He's been rescuing them this whole time. He brought them out of Egypt. He's been leading them, saving them. And he's been doing it with flawed people this whole time, too. You read Judges. Those guys weren't all that great. God uses them to save his people. Now he's doing it again. And we're moving into this time where God is going to use a king to save his people, starting with this first flawed king, Saul. God is the one who saves his people, and he can do it however he wants to. But what we start to see in this passage is the first glimmer, the first glimpse of a reality that God is going to use a king to save his people. We now have a monarchy in Israel. We now have a king that God has chosen. And from this point forward in Scripture, God is going to use kings to rescue his people. And even in this chapter of Samuel, chapter 11, as we look at Saul, who is uninspiring in many ways, we can start to get a glimpse and a picture of the true king who would come one day in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the ultimate king who comes to save his people. And I've been thinking about, it's it's Christmas time, it's the Advent season, we're remembering how Christ was born among us, born to save us. And even in this text in 1 Samuel, there's some striking similarities between what's going on here and what went on in Jesus' life. Um, and I want you to imagine, right, if we go back in time, you don't know anything about who Jesus is, you don't know any of that stuff, you walk into that stable in Bethlehem, it's, there's animals all around, you know, and then there's a newborn baby crying just in a feeding trough, animals everywhere, you can imagine looking down at that baby and somebody goes, hey, that baby's going to save the world. And you go, how can this man save us? How can this baby save us? You see where we are right now in this manger in Bethlehem? What's going on? How can this baby save us? And people continue to say this throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. We, we read in Isaiah, we've mentioned this verse, that he had no, no form or majesty that we should look on him, no beauty that we should desire him. You can just see Jesus, a, a normal-looking guy by all accounts, nothing spectacular looking at him. You can tell somebody, hey, that guy is going to save the world. How's that man going to save us? He came and he caused division, just like Saul. Saul's made king, and then there's division. There's people who hate him. There's people who despise him. Jesus said in Luke 12 that he comes to bring division, that, that when he comes, some people are going to hate him and some people are going to love him, and he's going to bring division. And he was even... Uh, among his own people despised. Remember in in John chapter 6, Jesus is in Nazareth, his hometown. Now he's going about his ministry, and they go, hey, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? And how does he now say, I come down from heaven? These are God's own people. These guys know Jesus. They saw him grow up. They go, hey, Joseph is my neighbor. This is Jesus. He's the carpenter's kid. How can this man save us? What's he talking about? This This is just a carpenter from around the corner. His own people despised him enough that they eventually killed him and he died on a tree. How can a dead person hanging on a tree save anybody? How can this dead guy hanging on the tree be the king of all creation? And that's still what many people think today. If you ask a non-believer, if you really press into them, hey, this guy, this Jesus who was born 2,000 years ago, who died 2,000 years ago, he can save you. 
People are like, how can this guy save me? What does this guy have anything to do with me? This baby who was born, this, this guy who died on a tree 2,000 years ago has nothing to do with me. How can he save me? People have been asking this question about the true king for 2,000 years. And really, kind of like the despisers of Saul, you'd, you'd almost, it would make sense that they'd be asking that if Jesus was in fact just some guy that was born 2,000 years ago, if Jesus was just some guy that died on a tree. But the good news of Christmas is that Jesus was not just some guy. Jesus was in fact not just a mere man, but the very God of the universe, the God who created everything, come down and took on flesh to save us. There is no human king in all of history who can save us. All you have to do is keep reading past 1 Samuel. All of the kings are bad. None of the kings can fully save God's people. And the good news, again, of Christmas is that it's not, we don't have just a mere human king to save us. We have the God of the very universe, this second person of Trinity, God the Son, who was there before the foundation of the world, who created the world, who sustains the world. He came down and took on our flesh to come and be our king. And he was able to do what no human king can do, which is live a perfect life, die as a perfect sacrifice for those who haven't lived a perfect life. And he didn't stay dead on the tree, but he rose again, ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he is now our king, leading us and redeeming us. And so now anyone throughout the whole world can go to this king to be saved, can put their faith in him, can repent of their sins, and be brought into God's covenant people and be saved. So now we're finally going to get back around to that question that I asked and what it has to do with us. How can this man save us when we find ourselves in a situation in our life? We'll wake up one morning and go, what have I done? We're looking around at a mess of our own creation. We've wandered away. We've tried this thing or that thing in the world, and it's caused us uh, some serious consequences in our life. And we're feeling guilty, and we're feeling broken, and we're feeling, how, what is going to happen to me now? How, does Jesus, how do we answer this question for us? How can this man, Jesus Christ, the true king, save us? The answer to the question is, God is faithful to save his covenant people through his king. If you are in here this morning and you are in Christ and you've placed your faith in him, then you have been adopted as a child of God. Not only have you been adopted, you've been purchased by God. And it wasn't just spare change that he had laying around. It was the very blood of his own son sacrificed to purchase you and bring you into communion, into his people. So now... You are a part of God's covenant people. You are, he is your father. You're a co-heir with Christ. And just in the same way that God rescues his covenant people in the Old Testament, just in the same way that God works salvation through Saul for his people uh, in, in Israel at this time, God now works salvation for his covenant people now through his king, Jesus Christ. Because God has purchased you, because you're a part of his covenant people, he can do whatever he wants to. He can use anything to do it. And his will for you is your salvation. Because he has purchased you, he is faithful not only for your salvation, but for your sanctification. He's faithful not only for that, but for your eventual glorification as you raise again in new bodies with him. And so when you come face to face with the mistakes you've made, when you realize you've made a foolish decision and you're facing the consequences, you can rest assured that God will work out all things for the good of those who love him. There's nothing you can do to trip and fall and walk off the cliff on the other side. You are completely saved with him, and he can use any situation. Even a terrible king like Saul, he can use any situation for his, for his glory and for your good. Which I think begs the question of us, of how do we live now? As we leave this morning, how do we live now? Does this mean we can just walk out of here and do whatever we want? 
and just, hey, well, it doesn't matter. You know, God can use Saul, so I'll just do whatever I want, and God will just fix all my messes for me. No, I don't think that's the answer to this question. I don't think that's what this means. It doesn't mean we can live however we want. And as any of us uh, know who have been a Christian for any amount of time, it's not like consequences go away. It's not like when you accidentally sin and mess up after you're a Christian that God's just like, oh, pff, no consequences. I work everything out for good. Pff, you're fine. Don't worry about that. No, we, we will face consequences. If we do foolish things, if we uh, look to the world for our cues and not to Scripture and we try and, and are influenced by the wrong people and all these things, there's consequences. Uh, God doesn't just disappear the consequences. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that God makes all your problems go away and you can just do whatever you want. What it does mean is that when you stumble, when you fall, God will take those things in your life and work it for his glory and for your good. Uh, God will refine you. God will have, as you go through trials, even if they're of your own making, you're learning hard lessons, you're running into these consequences, God can use that for your good. He can use that to sanctify you as if you're going through a fire and being refined. Uh, God will use those things for your good. We count it as joy when we face trials and persecutions and troubles in our life because God uses all of that for your good and for his glory because you are his people. You are his child. And the other good news is it's not like now we go through life just hoping we don't mess up, and then when we do mess up, okay, okay, well, God's going to work through this. It's going to be tough. God's going to work through this. No, we go out of here confident and empowered by the same spirit that empowered Saul to defeat the Ammonites, the same spirit that rushed on Saul, the same spirit that helped Jesus survive the temptations in the wilderness, survive the temptations throughout his ministry, going to the cross. That's the same spirit that indwells each and every one of us. So we go out of here not just trying not to mess up and then, you know, taking comfort that God's going to work it all out eventually for our sanctification, we go out of here living for God, serving him, empowered by his spirit. We're able to actually serve him. We're able to follow him. We don't have to make every mistake. We will make mistakes. But we don't have to. We can be empowered to resist temptation, to avoid some of those consequences, and to live for Christ in our life because we are empowered by his spirit. Jesus Christ is the king of everything, and he's your king if you have placed your faith in him. He's the king over your life. And uh, we are a, he, it's, your will, it's his will for you to be empowered by his spirit, to follow him, to love him with everything that you are. And so as we leave this morning, that's what we're going to go do. We're going to go follow Christ, love him, love people around us, serve him and serve people. And then when we find ourselves in a mess, we're running into consequences of our foolish actions, we can rest assured that God is faithful to work out our salvation through his chosen, spirit-empowered King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story, for this, these events that happened so long ago that still uh, you have uh, inspired them to have profit for our lives today. God, thank you that you work out your salvation through your king, and thank you most of all, God, that you sent your son to take on human flesh, to come and be the king that no human uh, ever really could have been. Thank you, God, that you have completely rescued us and redeemed us and saved us and purchased us so that we are now your children, that we are in your family, and that now you are working all things together for our good, for our sanctification. God, help us to live uh, spirit-empowered lives. Help us to live for you, uh, doing good works in your name, resisting temptation, 
And God, help us to rest assured that when we stumble, when we fall, when we make mistakes, when we're struggling through difficult consequences from our actions, that you are faithful to us, to your covenant people, to work all of this out for our good, God. Please help us to sing now uh, as people who are free and uh, redeemed by you, and help us to go out of here uh, ready to serve you. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.